Ladies and gentlemen, hello again, and welcome back to Don't Worry About the Government. It is now the month of May, May 11th, as I speak to Sean Frieder. Sean, how you doing? Doing all right. Glad it's summer. Uh, Glad to be back. How you doing, Chris? I don't know that I'm glad it's summer. Uh, The allergies out here in Texas have been at an all-time awful high, crippling me and many, many others that I know. Uh, the heat is, is starting to swell in here. Uh, summer is very much afoot. I played a show here on Saturday and, uh, it was like this indoor outdoor venue, uh, where people were masked inside. The door is open to the outsides. There's open air. Um, so it's even hotter in the venue than it is outside and even sweatier and more humid and miserable in the venue. Uh, I, Sean do not love summer. Yeah, you know, as soon as I said it, I, I'm programmed to say that because as a university professor, summer means a bit more freedom for me. But other than that, I mean, I'm I'm with you, man. Uh, I, I, we both know what it is to grow up in the uh, oppressive, uh, oppressive heat of uh, Arizona summers. Florida summer is a little bit different. I'm sure Texas summer's got their own thing, too. But uh yeah, not not necessarily a fan myself. We get rain uh, with with our summers, which you know Arizona gets the nice monsoon season. I always like that part of it. But other, oh man, other than that, that's that's the best. Yeah, uh, I love monsoon season. Um, you'll probably agree with me on this. There's something different about Arizona summer, though, right? Like it's like your body makes adjustments to it yeah. physiologically, and you're just able to endure that dry heat at, at much higher volumes. I'm mean, after yeah. obviously after like 95 to hundred, it starts getting pretty sweltering, but like you get to a point where you don't mind the low nineties. No. Yeah. There's something, I don't know what it is, but like, yeah, it's like you say, there's a misery index that rises, but it, do, it doesn't rise like linearly with the temperature. It's like, once you've hit a certain temperature point, your body's just kind of like, well, I expected to be this miserable for about three or four months. And you just kind of live with it. I mean, to be fair, you spend less time outside as much oh, as yeah, you possibly yeah, can. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you stay near your friend's pools as much as you possibly can, or just indoors. But uh, yeah, there is something, it's, it's not quite the same. There tends to be a breeze at night too, like uh, summer nights. nights. Are nice. Yeah, nice the are nights nice. are really nice out in Arizona. Um, the, yeah, a lot, lot of good times we had back in the day uh, at good night. Times. Yeah, yeah, I know <laughs> for sure. Uh, nostalgia. Uh, speaking of nostalgia, I think we're all going to be nostalgic for the good old days of Twitter, amazingly calling it the good old days of Twitter in the last decade. Um, I didn't know if that was going to be a Roe v. Wade segue or if that was going to be a Twitter segue. There's a lot. That could have gone a lot of ways. American decline has many faces, Sean Frieder. <laughs> uh, I I think we're going to have like progressive MAGAism here where eventually we're going to want to make America great again, but like w- by which we mean like bring back Roe versus Wade and, you know, um, allowing transgender kids to oh, not man. be scared in schools anymore. And the, the MAGA back- symbology will just hop between parties every 30 years. Uh, well, it'd be MAPA and now it'd be make America progressive again. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I, I mean, this I think is fairly light topic in, in many ways because it's like Musk is going to buy Twitter. Does this really matter? 
Not really. Twitter is a 14-year-old social media website that is, I think, at best ever been third among all of its competitors. It's on the decline. It is not adding to its network um, base. It has a very sort of niche audience among journalists um, and way too online people. I mean, the joke is it's just journalists and furries on Twitter um, and right-wingers. Um, and, and like that, that's basically right. Like it's not the public square. It's not really much of anything. And so to me, when Musk said he wanted to buy Twitter, this has always been about more or less getting Trump his Twitter back. Uh, I, I mean, like, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. I think some of the news stories that have been trickling out from Musk this week about how he would give Trump his Twitter back and like how he hadn't even really thought about what he thinks social media policy should be, although he maybe is loosely in favor of shadow banning and many of the things that right wingers said they never liked, um, you know, it, but it's he's going to get Trump his Twitter back like he just doesn't believe in giving Trump a permanent ban that that was that was a wrong and horrible abridgment of freedom of speech. Now, a couple of things before I toss it to you here. Uh, initially, Musk was all like, I'm going to buy it myself, right? And then I've detected over the last couple of weeks here, he's been getting cold feet on this. And that's what this whole buyer group thing is about. I, everyone's aghast about who he put together as the buyers. Um, I sort of go like, well, this is exactly who this website holds any value to. Like fascist governments like Qatar and Saudi Arabia, these sorts of governments want to make sure social media companies can't harm them. And so social media still has, this website still has utility to them as something to own and make sure that they can neuter. Um, but outside of that, uh, you know, there haven't been any business buyers. And that's what's interesting to the buyer list to me too. Um, Musk wants to offload how much of his ownership it's going to be and how much of a whomping he's going to take when he buys this crappy company that is assuredly doomed over the next like four to five years here. I, I, if Twitter, if Twitter's stock plummeted and went, you know, went the way of like Peloton or something like that, or like the way Facebook is going right now, that wouldn't shock me in the slightest because they've never been profitable. Like that, this is not a company that's been particularly good at showing how to be profitable. Um, so Musk is going to buy Twitter. I think Twitter becomes a right-wing paradise for a while. Um, and over time, basically, journalists find somewhere else to go. And once they do that en masse, uh, then Twitter is effectively just a ghost site like MySpace. So, yeah, a bunch of different thoughts on this. I mean, I guess to start with, like, the, you know, the concern of, of Elon Musk and, and Twitter generally, um, I, I guess I would say that I think in terms of the daily operating status and procedures of the website. Like you said, I, I don't think that there's a lot of complicated stuff that's going to be going on here. Um, I, I do think, I wouldn't say that, like, I think that in Elon Musk's mind, he's really thinking primarily about Trump, but I think he's thinking about Twitter in a way that, that basically has the same effect as you're saying, which is, I think he has just a really reductionist view of free speech. And I think it's the same view of free speech, by the way, that basically Donald Trump has. And I mean, I think a lot of people have that, too, which is it's really not a view of free speech. It's just, hey, I'd like to be able to say whatever the hell I want and not really have major uh, you know, retribution against me, at least in the form of bans or something like that. So, I mean, I think that he comes into it basically with this kind of naive, simple idea of like, you know, that kind of thing has to go. 
But then, you know, I'm reminded of kind of like the speech from like the Joker in the Dark Knight, where it's like, this is someone that's like, this is a dog chasing a tire. Like, you know, once he catches it, I don't think he really knows what the hell he's going to do with it. Um, you know, in, in economics, this is what would be preferred, referred to as like, you know, a, a prestige or a luxury investment where, you know, this is not really something I think that, as you point out, makes sense as something where like he's going to get huge returns on this investment, that this is a wise financial He's overpaying decision. on the investment. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the asking price that he offered to the board was so high they couldn't turn him down. Right. Which only speaks to how bad his position is. And I, I guess... Oh, Real quickly on the Trump thing, just to maybe toss this back to you and see what you think about this. I guess when I say this is primarily about Trump and getting his Twitter back, I, I should maybe modulate that a little bit and say that this is about getting Trump's Twitter back in service of Musk trying to be someone who is able to suck up a lot of Trump's fan base. That Musk wants to be this generation's Trump. Um, yeah. The way that Donald Trump was in the 80s, Musk wants to be that. Maybe Musk has aspirations, not obviously to the presidency because he's not eligible, but to have some greater say in American political life. And this is his first political move that, that this is better understood as a political move. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Um, I mean, even there, I would say that like I compared to like an 80s, 90s ish Donald Trump, I think that, you know, that's someone that like he, he's just kind of an idiot that wants to be in a playground built for him in New York, you know, for a while and people are paying attention to him. But he wants that level of social relevance. And I think that's that is what basically Elon Musk wants now. I think Elon Musk would rather frame that like not as a, you know, like old style kind of like playboy millionaire kind of style, but he wants to sort of frame himself as an oligarch. And I think in order to do that, you make these like luxury, you know, legacy investments that, you know, they're not going to pay out. And I mean, the market, again, like you say, is showing that, you know, he's about 12% over what the market price seems to currently be sustaining. Some of that could be that they don't think that the deal is going to go through. A lot of it's probably just that they don't think it's a particularly attractive investment at that price. Um, but, you know, I don't think that he necessarily uh, cares about that he might back out of the deal and if he did that you know like musk being the way he is it, it that, i don't think that it would wouldn't be, surprise it wouldn't be anyone surprising, no because no? he did that yeah, with the candy company exactly yeah yeah well, he was gonna um, buy know, what was it seize candy or something like that and then he got cold feet on that yeah and frankly yeah. that was a better investment <laughs> yeah actually i mean for, for dollar for dollar yeah that's probably candy right. I mean, is gonna be around in a hundred years sean i feel <laughs> really i don't know about twitter but like People like candy. It's pretty popular. I, I hope Seize Candy is around in 100 years. Uh, I, I, I like that company. Um, you know, the, the other thing I'll say about Elon Musk is that I think that this is a good example. And this is like, I consider this as a, a warning shot across the abstract collective bow for us uh, as a, a civilization, as a society that's going into the 21st, 22nd, 23rd century. We have all these new problems of communication. Like we are a bunch of monkeys flying around on a rock around a nuclear reaction. And like, we have to figure out a way for these like seven, eight billion people to all talk to each other. And like, who's doing the regulating and who's actually controlling these global communications platforms. Now, I mean, I'm not going to say that like I was super much happier with like global communication being controlled by like a small board of extremely wealthy people. I'm less happy still with like a single person ostensibly having that kind of control, but like, like, 
species, fellas, like this is a problem. Got to figure this out. I'm not really sure what the answer is, but like this ain't going to work going forward. And if we keep fucking around with this shit like this, like this is bad for the species long term. I mean, even short term, this is pretty bad. And I think you see why, like in particular, you have, you know, the two most visible heads associated with social media Zuckerberg and now Musk. These are people that I think that we would all agree collectively, like almost specifically as an aspect of their personality. They have problems with social intelligence, with empathy, with being able to understand other people. And like, that's their fucking business. Like, that's unacceptable to have people control. It is control the sustaining joke. It's the sustaining resonant joke about both of them. It's like Mark Zuckerberg is data from Star Trek Next Generation. He wants to laugh like you humans do. Right. And Elon Musk is a petulant child on Twitter all the time who, like, posts like he's 14 when he's approaching 50. Uh, it, it, it's these two men have really, really clear personality flaws that I think if you had like an election or a referendum even of, do you want these people as the controllers of social media, they would lose in a wild route. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, M Musk would do better than Zuckerberg, but I, I assure you, Zuckerberg, if his status as the board of Meta, because this is such a big company, it's too big to fail or whatever, um, was, was somehow put to the American people. I think Zuckerberg would be lucky to get 25% in oh, a yeah. national referendum. Yeah. Seriously. Now, I mean, if, we, if we had some sort of like, you know, I, I think eventually where this has to go, so this looks like something that we do on a global level. It's something that would involve internet voting. It would involve some sort of like, you know, board of, of, of overseers globally for, you know, some sort of so social communications platform linked together, public, private. This is like really, you know, far out future stuff that like we won't be able to figure out for a while now. That's what it eventually has to look like. But if you were to take those referendum calls today, like the people that are currently controlling this stuff, there's not even a chance that the American people would be okay with that. And I mean, I'm not necessarily sure I'd be super happy with the average person the american population or the global population would be okay with and that's why you know this is just something I, like, i'm just trying to find a metric for consent that i think any of yeah. these guys could possibly pass and and i i really no i'm with you it's obviously yeah. for a lot to be like hey average american person who barely understands that their computer needs to stay plugged in in order to like have the battery be charging do you think you should you could maybe weigh in for a moment here on the nature of global communications <laughs> yeah. and technology like no obviously that's fraught but like yeah. this is about zuckerberg this is about musk it's about these people and I, i'm with you it's frankly uh, the, the sort of issue with musk buying twitter is just billionaires have way too much control the billionaires who have way too much control in our society are particularly flawed individuals yeah and that like really needs to be more meaningfully reckoned with i mean i think you have to take into account like and i don't think this is just wealth but i think you obviously see this in politics and i'm not the first person by any means to point this out but like money power like you might you know, get some people that chase things that just happen to come with those things because they're that passionate about whatever the field is. And I think you get people like, you know, say what you will about like a Gates or like, uh, you know, a, a Steve Jobs or something. I mean, they also have their huge gaping personal flaws, but like, you know, that they might be in it for more like the love and then they finally fall into the money or the power. But like you get a group of people that have this much money or this much power and you are like, 
almost by definition selecting on like personality disorders. Like who else could possibly put up with the level of work, the level of stress, the level of anything other than like you are driven by a maniacal need for power or like you just have like seriously different social processes. Well, yeah, like why wouldn't beings. you walk away at some point, right? You have a billion dollars. A billion should be enough for any human being to be like, okay, I'm done. Work, I, I can do something else. I actually yeah. don't have to impose myself on the planet like this. Yeah. Like, I have more than more than enough money, more than I'll ever possibly spend. Um, and the best possible thing I could do at this point is either one try to do public good to, to quote of course musk when it comes to ending world hunger and world hunger not feeling it um an, an incredible quote from musk even if he's saying it glibly the fact that he he yeah. can joke about people starving while he's smoking a cigar on the joe rogan podcast uh you know tells you everything about where this guy's at i, I mean i think the best thing that these people who have a billion dollars could do would be to withdraw from society and i think any anyone who who doesn't and someone like mark zuckerberg who's been making money hand over fist for now two decades um you know way too much control it's about the control it's about yeah. the status it's a you know i zuckerberg gets off on the fact that he can get called before congress this supposedly very powerful body that like us the average citizen would be scared of or even like you know uh, I'm, I'm a mid-level businessman or something would be scared of. And Zuckerberg can just basically beclown the Democrats and the Republicans, and they can't even do anything about it. Uh, you know, Musk can you know, ignore them or, you know, M Musk can have Tesla have recall after recall after recall and basically scoff at the idea that Congress is going to do anything to regulate Tesla and their vehicles. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's it stops being about the money because it's more money yeah. that they can ever spend. But the power, there's nowhere else to get the power. There's I mean, nowhere there's else this, to get status. You know, there, there's a line from Breaking Bad. And, you know, like the, the point at which that these people all arrive, either they've gotten there because they just had it in them forever. Or like at something happens in the process when you get to that level of power. Like then you kind of this Walter White syndrome where like you stop thinking of yourself as like, I mean, in his case, not a particularly great place to start as like a meth wizard, but like you start thinking of yourself as beyond that. And then he has this line where he like totally turns to starts to fully change towards the end of the series where he says, you know, like I'm, we're not in the meth business, we're in the empire business. And I think that that's basically the way that like all of these people develop over time is they stop thinking of themselves as doing X, maybe the thing that they were specialized in. And instead they fall in love with their own story and they see that like, ah, like I've risen like this far, what else can I do? And I think your point of, you know, what should a billionaire do once they've reached that level? And like, largely, I think the answer is like retire generously into like charitable contributions and kind of like leave civil society alone certain to, to a certain extent. I think that's right because I think what you see is that most wealthy people, they get to that point and they start thinking that they can help. And I think you have certain cases where like, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, in terms of at least the medical research that they've helped, yes, it's done some good. And there's there's plenty of good philanthropic organizations, but like you can't trick yourself into thinking that you, by jumping in to save every single problem, you're going to be an expert in 45 different 
things. You're going to save the world. And like, that's where, you know, we have to have less of an emphasis on these hero people and just more bodies of experts doing things. Cause that's where it's actually going to come from is people who know stuff, not people that have like had just survivorship bias of, you know, like just sorting themselves to the very top. Sorting themselves to the very top in a market exercise and thinking that that makes them qualified to do X, Y, and Z. I, I will say I am not particularly nostalgic for the Clinton Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation of um, doing well by or doing good by doing well or doing well by doing good or what, 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 you know, what, what they came up with. I think they're there's a lot of really valid criticisms to be lobbied at those. However, what alarms me even more going forward is that people like Musk and Zuckerberg, our generation of billionaires, feel no onus whatsoever to do shit all. So like Musk is going to throw a fire festival while the world burns. Um, like, like as a joke, as a troll to get likes and retweets on Twitter. This is the thing that bothers me is that like, you know, if you go back a hundred years, you know, you have, you know, the, the Carnegie's and the Rockefellers and you have all these like legacy families that like are pumping tons of philanthropic money. In. And like, again, these are families where like, this is probably a huge problem in many ways that the money is located there, but like and poor people this- needed schools and not opera houses. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you got, you got money being distributed in, in, in the wrong way, but you still have money being distributed in some sense. And at least like there was this expectation. I talk about this sometimes like with, with relation to attitudes that we see in the presidency of there used to be this sort of attitude of the, of what, you know, the French call like the noblesse oblige, you know, that like you as the wealthy person are supposed to, your role in society is to like paternalistically take care of what you see as these schmucks that are like running around society and like your job, you, you, you are supposed to take care of them. And like, you know, you get that with like an H.W. Bush kind of figure that like, you know, I come from this like legacy family to take care of the people. And like, that's not a great thing, but it's better than what's replaced it, which is this like what's popular now is this almost active thumbing of the nose at the idea that as a wealthy person, you should have any social responsibility whatsoever. I mean, what the public likes to the extent that they like them about Donald Trump and Elon Musk is that they actively flout all of these social conventions. And I mean, that's I don't know what you do with that. That's crazy. I wouldn't have guessed that would have happened 30 years ago. I mean, it's crazy. No, okay. So I love that you brought this up. One, because Noblesse Oblige was like literally on the top of my head. But two, it, it kind of got me thinking about the other thread that I think pulls together some stuff that we were bantering about prior to the show. We do talk before the show. And stuff that's on the slate here, which is like the changing nature of American conservatism. American conservatism, shortly put, what's changed? And, and, and if you asked me to... It lazily come up with a, a short answer as to what ch- changed. It's the utter loss of noblesse oblige among what the modern conservative strains are at this point. Um, economically speaking, it's not about trying to make a society that takes care of people and, and, and having sort of differing views about whether the New Deal can do that or whether the market, you know, compassionate conservatism, like that's gone. Uh, even saying compassionate conservatism, they'd be like, nerd, get out of here. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's got no place for compassionate conservatism. Madison Cawthorn has no place 
place for compassionate conservatism. Trump is not a compassionate conservative. Um, and if anything, he sort of makes it a point to poo-poo con- compassion on all levels. Um, even in terms of social conservatism, it is no longer about what is best for society. Frankly, uh, as we are one week into the fallout of the leaked opinion on Roe versus Wade, uh, it is really telling that as you look through the lit and the opinion columns and all of this stuff, and, and I did a fair amount, I can't say I've read every single National Review article or anything like that, but I, but I was looking because I was just curious. No sense of saying that like this is ultimately going to result in good outcomes for the country. No affirmative case made that Roe versus Wade is actually, and I'm not saying morally good, I'm saying economically like that like the outcomes of doing this are actually really good for america so beyond this being a moral good this is actually going to be a societal good to the country all will benefit even if there's moral conflict for the libs etc etc it's not about that it's not about that it's just about control this loss of noblesse oblige it is a really common thread across social conservatism and lastly across foreign policy conservatism um there is no and you look at the critiques of biden uh, foreign policy wise uh they're upset that he left afghanistan uh, not because we needed to do a better job taking care of afghanistan or anything like that but just because they want us to kind of keep troops there because we want to keep fighting the taliban insofar as there's a critique of joe biden on ukraine it is not a, we have an obligation to stop war crimes. Sean, I was going to do, uh, initially when I was prepping for the show, I was going to do like a list of all the war crimes on that's, that have happened in Ukraine up to this oh, point. Man. Okay, so I was prepping for that. I was prepping for that, right? Because I thought that that, that was going to maybe be like a, Sean, give me about three minutes here. I'm, I'm going to read something right quick. Um, there is a full Wikipedia article that sprawls on yeah. and on and on and on and on. I have more to say about that later. But isn't it telling that the Republicans feel no sense of obligation to the world with their foreign policy? It's a foreign policy that serves America, me first, me first. It's an America first is one more iteration of that lack of noblesse oblige or noblesse oblige however you like to say it doesn't really matter to me because like i i again i'm not saying if conservatism readopted it it would be good it would still have many of the same problems it had that made me not a conservative back when but this absence of noblesse oblige across the board um domestically um socially and foreign policy wise uh the the three pillars of reaganism if you will um and and the three pillars of like hw and even w's like compassionate conservatism uh because i mean again in the cell of the iraq war they're like we're gonna bring democracy women aren't gonna be under headscarves they're gonna go to school and stuff i mean like it was like think about the children think about the women it'll be good for people like we have an obligation to these people do we not um you don't have to believe these arguments to realize that they were making these now and now they're just gone they don't care it's just about winning that is the nature of this conservatism and i don't think like i certainly in watching Nancy Pelosi, did you see the clip of Pelosi saying that we need a strong Republican Party 
for for the for the fourth time in, in, in two years, um, several of which have been after a domestic terror attack. Pelosi has not come to terms with this, but neither has media and polling, um, which we were grousing about before the show. It, is I, I, what's changed about them is I think it's it. They don't know how to fully capture that in the presentation and in the polling yet um, without sounding like they are very biased against the yeah. conservative movement at this point. But I'm sorry, this is who they are. And this is and more importantly, it's not me saying who they are. It's them with their own catchphrases saying who they are. There's yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. And I mean, I think the it, it's an important lens to look at this through because like, I think the closest to an older uh, or a more like a view of conservatism articulated in previous decades, like this seems to me closer to the open articulation of like Margaret Thatcher, there is no such thing as society, you know? And I don't think, you know, even though Reagan and Thatcher, like they're close together, Reaganism, Thatcherism has a lot of things that look close. Like, I don't think that like that has really ever been up until more recently, the open and naked way it's presented is just, there's really no societal obligations. We're not trying to solve collective action problems. There is just almost kind of like a liberty of laziness of like, there's a simple thing you can do, which is everyone just does their own thing. And like, hopefully everything works out from that. And like, you know, past, you know, scholars have talked about the difference between conceptions of a positive and a negative liberty. I'm at, you know, just cause this is where my head is at. I'm burned out after the semester, been playing some video games reasonably. I recently, I'd like to take the opportunity here to like coin a term for, for uh, liberty here, which is like, I think that the conservatism that you see today with like their view of liberty is like what I'll call like Elden Ring liberty, which is like, so like Elden Ring is this massive open world RPG. And like the whole thing is like you have limitless freedom, like far more freedom than like pretty much any game you could ever imagine. You can do basically anything, but like almost everything kills you. And that's the thing is like, it is a world beset by collective action problems that no one can solve. But like, if you just on a very simple measure say like, how much freedom is there? Oh, there's tons of freedom. And I think like, this is like 3000 years later, like what you would see if you just keep adopting this idea over and over again of like limitless freedom. But eventually what this means is like not really effectively much positive freedom at all because you don't have the resources to solve the collective action problems to do these things. Everyone's hemmed in, but everyone's like, free in this very, very lazy sense that allows society to crumble while allowing everyone to kind of, in theory, make their own individual decisions. Yeah, it's like a tyranny of the state of nature. But and, and I think that's sort of like captures part of it, like it, particularly along climate change, right? Like it's the Ben Shapiro, just sell your house to Aquaman and move uh, further ashore. <laughs> I, I, I watched a $310,000 house uh, get sucked into the ocean here last night on Twitter. Uh, you know, unfortunately, they weren't able to make a sale in time. Uh, it, it, right. So, like, it, it's like that sort of freedom. But I also think, like, kind of like a video, like, conservatives want you to think you're free and they want you to start from the idea of, see, look at how expansive Elden Ring is. And, and you got to pull the game back and go, okay, yeah, but you guys decided to be the developers of that game. So, like, all of this freedom exists in tight constraints that you all came right. up with. It all exists within parameters you all came up with. So, like, 
yeah, like, you know, you're free to have sex. Uh, but there is this one rule that you can no longer, you know, if you get pregnant, do anything about it. Um, yeah. It, yeah, right. Like, like, and, and that's the other part of it. Too. You don't have the right. Oh, you don't have the right. And for like the like 20 Elden Ring players listening right now, you just laughed. But <laughs> that's a message from the game uh, that, that it frequently gets left. If you can't go into a place that someone writes that message down and like, oh, you don't have the right does seem to be kind of the, the clarion call. Okay. Right okay. Now. See, like, I like that. I, I haven't played Elden Ring yet. I am. Um, I'm softening so- you up for it. Yeah, no. So I am currently on Sean. I'm on uh, Romancing Saga, which is okay. this really interesting Square Enix game that was made in the mid '90s. That yeah, I remember re- that. Only got released in America. Uh, like Romancing Saga Three is the one I'm playing. It only got released in America like a couple of years ago, um, and it is for a mid '90s RPG super complicated uh the combat system has uh, like there's like weapons and different weapon classes and um different battle formations and there's like an elemental system that's like relevant to like you if you fight in an ice area ice spells are more powerful that sort of thing uh it it, it is actually a fairly complicated little game um yeah uh, anyways uh as a quick aside there um but all right so we've got a few minutes left on this first clip here um okay Let's real quickly. I I I I want to talk. I guess on Sanders' twenty twenty four comments, which are now a, a minute old here. But like Sanders said that essentially, and I want to qualify this because like the libs have been going after him a little more aggressively than they ought to. But but basically, what he said is that if Joe Biden sought to not seek renomination, like if he decided that he wasn't going to you know do a second term, Sanders would run again. Um, which immediately got a, a like a, a, a massive hell no for me on this. Um, not because I have been razzle-dazzled by Joe Biden. More on that in the second half here. I have not been razzle-dazzled at all by Joe you Biden. You don't say. Uh, no. Uh, yeah, tipping the hand for the second half of this show. <laughs> but Bernie Sanders is still emblematic of part of the problem here, which is we do not need 80 year olds manning key structural posts in the government at anywhere near the volume they currently do um if you look at the current chain of succession right now absent kamala harris the average age of the chain of succession are are all people who could reasonably be expected to have a stroke on any given day um like entire leadership of the democratic party in their 80s yeah wild and 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 the uh, level of discourse on this i feel like much like roe versus wade's only just now starting to catch up but the stories about feinstein that have been coming out over the last several months here um uh, i i have one here or i had one here on feinstein um where she once again was having issues remembering who's there grassley similar reports have been coming out about him um these people should not still be in government. These people in the Supreme Court should this, not be this, in government. This ties to the conversation that we were just having. And that again, like even if you have someone that I think is well-intentioned, in many of the cases, I think some of these people are at least, 
you have people that are in these positions of power because they don't have the thing that goes off in most people's head that says like, I don't need to do this anymore. I can stop this. This can or even should end. They just keep ticking. These are little energizer bunnies and they're not going to stop until they turn off. And yeah, like you said, like it's going to be by a stroke for most of these cases. Um, it's it's very frustrating that we have institutions designed that basically depend on people having the force. I mean, and, and I, when I bring this up to people, oftentimes what they'll say is, well, you know, like people have the right to vote as they want. And if they're continuing to elect these people, it's ultimately up to them. And it's just like. To me, it is a silly and naive view. It fundamentally of human misunderstands nature. how it's elections just, that's, that's work not too. How elections yeah, work. that's not how districts work. No, no. Yeah. I mean, the incumbency advantage is so strong for so many different reasons. There is no way that on a neutral playing field, if, if if Feinstein walked in having not had the experience and not based on the amazing things that she's done over 30 years or whatever, just like if she came in as a fresh face, presented herself and her ideas and her ability to get those things done now, there's not a chance on earth that she would survive a primary. And incumbency advantage allows you to maintain this well into your 80s. And I will say, you know, even for people that have become folk heroes, even for people that I respect in a lot of ways, I mean, you look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She had an opportunity to step down and when, when she was quite old and she could have done that before we fell into the nightmare that we've fallen into now. And we could be looking at a very different Roe v. Wade decision in a, in a month or so if if she had just not done. So, I mean, there's a lot of this. It's, it's good people. It's people I like. It's people I don't like. It's people on the courts. It's people in the presidency and the legislative branch. We do not take age seriously enough. And we need to because, you know, the average age that people are going to live is just going to go up and up over time. And I think, you know, we've talked about this before on the show, but this is revealing age is going to be a very significant divider in terms of partisanship, public opinion, in terms of ability to get things done. Uh, generational representation is a real thing. And I've been saying, you know, to my students, to people our age, if you're under the age of 40, 45, and you just feel like politics has never made sense to you, and it's never really reflected your social reality or what's going on, because it hasn't. And I mean, in some sense, it hasn't in a wealth cast kind of sense. But in a lot of ways, it also just hasn't because they're not representing your generation. No, like, they're the like representing great... like 65 to 85. Yeah. Like, like the government you've been living under is largely a government that serves and services the demographies of the 65 to 85 year old class like the the middle and upper class specifically in those cohorts but like that's what the politics is for um you know it's it's what that group is willing to tolerate Absolutely. I mean, and it's also the group again. I mean, this is something that you could absolutely pin on younger people, but this is the group that vote. I mean, they vote three times the clip of 25 to 30 year olds. So, you know, of course, they're going to get more represented in that sense. They have more money. Of course, they're going to get more represented. They have more connections to members of Congress, to people in the legislature. Of, of course, they're going to be able to get more representation. So, you know, I don't think we take this seriously enough as a society. There's a lot of ways in which age is just stacked the deck against you know, younger people. And I mean, this is unfortunate because more and more technology goes on, you know, the difference from one generation to the next is going to keep growing. And I mean, this is a problem that we have to get in front of. I don't see us doing it. And it's scary. And it, it's affecting our politics badly right now. Uh, this comment from Sanders, I guess, upset me the most because he is uniquely positioned right now to be the guy to say to the other gerontocrats, hey, I'm 80 years old. This is going to be my last term because 
I'm too old to keep reasonably asking the people of Vermont and the people of America to have an 86 year old as their senator going forward. This is my last term. Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Grassley, Clarence Thomas. I, I mean, yeah. long list of gerontocrats. It is time for all of us to go. If Sanders gave that speech, it would be the greatest thing he could do. It, it, would, be, it would be fascinating. It would be fascinating and amazing. Moment. And, you know, and the other thing I'll just really quickly throw in um, is that this would also, I, the, the other reason I'm not as happy about the idea of a, of a Sanders running is just looking at what I know will happen with identity politics in the, in the Democratic primary system. I, I really want the next set of slate of candidates to be female centric because if, if we do more not on that in the second half, for sure. <laughs> right. Oh, no, no. Let, let's we'll, pick we'll that up on the, on the next one. See you then. All right. So in the last segment, I started to say I was not enamored with Joe Biden. And, and I got to be honest, I don't make this case lightly. Uh, and, and it took me a long while to get there, much longer than many of you in the audience. I'm aware. But guys, there's a history with primarying incumbent presidents that does not end very favorably for either the incumbent president nor the primary challenging crowd here. And so when you make these sorts of arguments, you got to actually do it with some weight and some serious consideration of all of the consequences. However, I feel like Sean, and I'm interested to hear where you're at on this, that we have just arrived at a point with the gerontocratic leadership of the Democratic Party that is values-wise, very out of step with the younger generation of the Democratic Party, too, where they just simply do not have the ability to rise to meet the challenges of the present moment. And what they were selling us in the 2020 campaign was never that they could. They just said that they'd be an alternative to Donald Trump. And they lived up to that, and that's fine and dandy, but we now have other problems other than Donald Trump. We have an issue <coughs> on the foreign policy front involving Ukraine, a massive list of war crimes on Ukraine as the Democrats and Joe Biden Loosely go, oh, we'll send some more aid. Oh, I don't want to do a no-fly zone, Jack. Oh, maybe we'll do this, maybe we'll do that. Standing by on that. Um, on student loans, the Biden administration likes to play games with loan holders on a month-to-month -month basis, making them wonder and look at their pocketbooks on a monthly basis and wonder, am I going to have to pay more money to my student loans? Not ever being fully sure how it's going to go. Um, on marijuana, uh, an issue I care a lot about, um, the Biden administration continues to be a moral scold on this. They not only say that not only will they not do anything on this, but they, they really go further and basically say, no, it should still be illegal. Like, like we, we really don't actually agree that marijuana is good. It's how they, they fired people from the White House over this. And then lastly, and I'm sure this has been the breaking point for a lot of people, Roe versus Wade. Um, why I've been here a little bit before this is this is going exactly the way I thought it was going to go. The Democrats have been so married to this safe, legal, and rare framework on abortion that they simply do not know how to 
fight against an all-out war against reproductive liberty. They don't have the rhetorical framework to do it. They don't even have it constitutionally in their hearts to do it because it's not necessary ideologically where they're at. Same thing on the trans stuff. Look, they get that it's a good election issue. But if you ask uh, a grammar, a grandpacrat how they really feel about the trans stuff, I don't think you'd like the answer. I really don't. Um, it, it, any number of these things, I think when you sum them all together, result in a version uh, of the Democratic Party that, that's just simply hard to defend. Um, this is a version of the Democratic Party that keeps saying hard to process or really associate with statements like we need a strong Republican Party. Um, this is not where I am at as a Democrat. This is not where most Democrats are at as Democrats. Most Democrats would not say a thing like, we need a strong Republican Party. Certainly not in the wake of a domestic terror attack. Certainly not in the wake of the Republicans strong-arming the Supreme Court to outlaw Roe versus Wade and criminalize abortion across the country, more or less. Like, like, uh, all of these things, I think, sum together for a case for a primary challenger to Joe Biden. But I don't think it should be an old white dude. And I don't even think it should be Liz Warren. I think this needs to be a generational critique. And so before I toss it to you, Sean, who do I want to challenge someone like Joe Biden? I want a younger woman around the age of 40 or so, um, 45 or so, to come in here and make a generational critique and also be able to say, and oh, by the way, Joe Biden, I don't actually think you could protect my reproductive rights. Um, as weird as this sounds, I think in terms of electorally speaking, um, having her right around the window of reproductive viability is actually kind of going to be important in this too. It needs to be a salient issue for her, and it needs to really heighten and accentuate the tensions between the grandpacrats, for whom this is all conjectural and back in my day, and um, someone like a millennial or a late Gen Xer for whom this is all real deal every day in the trenches sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, so... I'll definitely agree with you uh, on, on the we are not happy with where we are in this moment. And I'm I'm not I, I mean, I'll, I'll say my take on, you know, what should happen with the primarying is like I, I'm cynical enough that I feel like we're, we're just completely doomed in terms of either direction we go on this. It's, I, I, I kind of think we're doomed. It's this, all just doom. This is kind of why I'm also like like salt Joe Biden's earth, because I think we're sort of screwed if we keep using him and yeah. we're screwed if we don't challenge him. I mean, I so, you know, when historians write the history of this period of time in the future, I think, you know, we all know that they will go back to, you know, the escalator moment of where, you know, we started moving in a bad direction in terms of Trump and all this populism on the right. But then I think underplayed and under, under uh, accounted for right now, Tim Kaine. That I mean, that's a pretty good one. Uh, no, but... uh, no. If you're looking for a, like a, a sleeper moment where it was Tim Kaine yeah, instead that, of Bernie I mean, Sanders that in, in 26 for the 2016 sleeper moment, I'll give you that one because I mean, I can still remember the level of groan in my body just like when I heard that news and having so much hope that it would be something better. But you know, I was just going to say that the the moment right before Super Tuesday in 2020, where it went from looking like Sanders is going to be the face of this moment for the Democratic Party to it's definitely not going to happen. Now it's just going to be Joe Biden for sure. Um, I feel like that moment really gave us a lost decade. Um, 
in politics because now the Democratic Party is committed to defending a Joe Biden version of politics. And when I talk about Joe Biden with my students, I frequently use this line of like, this is a guy that's running on Windows 95. And like, you can take that to mean that like, he's slow, which fine. That's not really what I'm getting at. I'm getting he, at like, he's running on like America's economy used to kick yeah. ass in 1995, Jack, his, when Microsoft political, was- Yeah, his political instincts, they're forged during a period of time that we no longer exist in. So most of the appeals he's going to make, to the extent that he's even capable of making uh, charismatic appeals in the first place they're going to be aimed at the wrong place and so you know like this is someone i will say that yeah on on drug reform we, we could have even even li- like not a sanders but like any of the other 20 candidates from the field we would be having a different moment with drug reform right now um on student loan forgiveness i don't know what that would look like i don't trust that the democratic party for the most part would take that seriously with other candidates but it's definitely not going to be with joe biden who's indicated his his uh, opposition to that in the past they're not like, going to like get- Buttigieg would give you weed but not student loans Correct. Like you'd at least get like some kind of half measure and you'd have a younger person that's capable of articulating some kind of vision for the future. But, you know, like to add to your list, besides just the things policy wise that like have not been moves that the administration has done, I'm glad you chose the things that you do, because I mean, you could choose things obviously like build back better, but like that's dead in the water, probably regardless of who's president, just given the ideological politics of the Senate right now. But like the things you mentioned, these are things that he could have done uh, mostly on his own. He could have gone unilaterally. And, and the thing that is just kind of hovering over all of this I'm a big policy guy. I wish politics were more focused on policy, but like, I think you have to, again, accept the moment that we are in. And this is a moment of, of communication. This is a moment of articulating visions. This is a moment of like rapidly deviating values from one another. And Biden has like, it's not even that he's a bad communicator. Dude, it's like the general's not there. No, what what, what reminds me of historical example wise, it's like when, Russia got invaded by Germany and the Russians couldn't find Stalin for a week. I feel like the news came down from the Supreme Court and the White House, it's still like, where's my president? Like, where, where's the general? Um, like, like, we just lost a big battle and he's sort of like, well, I haven't actually seen the ruling yet, Jack. Like, oh, come on, yeah, yeah. dude. Come on. Like, like. No, it it doesn't work. I see in the groups that have support for him, like it's like, you know, like older women that are besmitten still by like aviator Joe and like the charm and the niceness. And like, it's not enough. It's 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 actively alienating the left flank of the youth within the United States. And it's making it harder for Democrats to do what they need to do in the future. I don't know what the solution to this is. It alienates normies, too. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's actually part of why I threw it on the slate is. This really started getting on my radar when I heard my normie friends, who I know are like liberals who probably would vote for M4A if it was a referendum sort of types. Like yeah. like, like the people that any left coalition that has any dream of ever governing would actually need. They are also out just, yeah, they, don't, they, don't, they don't care every day. But like if Joe Biden was not the nominee, they wouldn't give two shits. This is a really important point because it's not just left right politics. We've talked about this on the show before, but it's change versus not change politics. And that's so undervalued as a part of what most people are seeing. Most people are just thinking like this is bad, right? 
like this has been bad for a while and it seems like it keeps getting worse and like people might define what that badness is in a hundred ways but like there's the politician that's going to tell them like you know everything's fine and like we just need to try a little bit harder and use some of that old american spit shine and then there's going to be the politician that tells you no you're right things are fundamentally broken we need to treat this like things are fundamentally broken and like the right should not be owning that latter conception of America. It is insane that the left set up, um, you know, like whenever they go low, we go high. Like America is already great as their response to make America great. I mean, you don't gaslight the, you know, not even the middle of the country, but just like people that might not pay that Democrats much Democrats don't think America is great. They right. might go like, oh, you can't blame Joe Biden for gas prices or whatever. Like, right. you know what I mean? But like, then you go one step further and go like, actually, the country's going really really well and like every democrat like democratic voters kind of like yeah uh, and we've also i mean talked about this again on the show before but like in the 1990s you pass a gigantic infrastructure plan that rebuilds bridges and creates jobs people actually reasonably care about that you pass that same plan in 2022 no one gives a shit i mean it's actually really important and it does a lot of good things but like when it comes to what's going to make people feel like their political coalition is being listened to no one gives a shit he's not going to get any credit for that amongst the under 30 under 40 crowd they want to see something change and like rebuilding our bridges is a band-aid on a band-aid on a band-aid that they're yeah, just especially the the for. modest bill that passed you know what i mean like the, the biggest problem with that bill is that's a bill that you even have optically a hard time pointing to like like when they talk about build back better sort of telling that they don't have like a signature picture or anything to even point to a signature image that makes you think about build back better it's just uh hey we did pass that bill uh yeah uh it, it, it i i don't i mean look dude i i i'm with you i'm i'm super pessimistic in, in that i think whether he gets primaried or i think if he gets primaried he probably survives um i think yeah. it should still happen um, I think whether or not he gets primaried, we're in a heap of trouble. That is going I mean, to require, I'll just say really require meaningful social action. Um, yeah. The stuff in front of the houses this week, getting in front of yeah. justices' houses. Everybody needs to do a lot more of that. We're going to need a lot more of that. Um, all, it, it's Because I, I really think at this point, the Democratic Party is going to need to be forcibly primaried and challenged. But like... At, given where the election cycles are right now, you're just going to need to be on the street constantly because yeah. they're they're not going to respond until they have to. I mean, to your to your to answer your question originally, I mean, like if a gun to my head, like this is just again, I, I, I does Joe Biden deserve to be primaried? Yes. Should Joe Biden and basically anyone over the age of seventy five be taken out of like, political power? He shouldn't power? be the nominee. Absolutely. In, like in, 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 in an abstract yeah. world, he is fundamentally failed but as the leader of the Democratic also Party. Also, knowing where we are, that like what would I want exactly what you said? I want a woman in like her mid forties that like has policy chops. I mean, that sounds perfect to me. Like, I don't know exactly who that person is. That's maybe for a different discussion. But like, my thing is like, I don't think we have that. And I think we have a moment right now. It's just like, it's a bad moment politically. Like 2024 is going to be, I know this is the shit that the Democratic Party is going to use to cow everyone into compliance. The mo are that. you about to say it's the most important election of our lives? I mean, yeah, like I am about to say that. And I hate that shit. I mean, I, it, it's obnoxious. It's reductionist. I, I, like, I, 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 I hate how they have gotten away with basically using that as an escape to not take action yeah. it's almost like like what they like to do is drive the car as far to the edge as possible and go this is the most important turn of our lives right. yes because you keep pushing the car to the edge of the road yeah 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 i mean exactly i mean like 
It is simultaneously the case that it is a bullshit tactic that I hate every single time I see them use it. And then and you should as, still go vote. And as a political science professor, for the love of God, we don't need to handicap the party right now in the middle of the decade when the alternative is fucking Trump. And I know what's going to happen. I know what will happen is we lose. And I like I can't the, Trump two or whatever DeSantis one or whatever the fuck comes next. We're, it's not even going to be 2016 to 2020 anymore. Like our country's in a bad way. I don't really know how to like ring the alarm bells anymore, but like it is that important. But like you say, I fully blame the Democratic Party leadership for bringing us through bad strategy for 20 years to a point in time where I have to be doing like this Sophie's Choice bullshit every single time. Don't worry about the government. We'll be back, I don't know, maybe later this month, maybe uh, early part of next month. Uh, you can find us on patreon.com slash DWATG to watch the video versions of this episode. If you're listening on the audio format, that means you're on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. If you want the audio version, you can, of course, go there, or you can get the audio version on patreon.com slash DWATG. A dollar a show, which means literally one dollar a month, people. Maybe as much as two dollars a month, people. Um, that is all I ask at patreon.com slash DWATG. For the time being, I'm still on Twitter at DWATG. And it's probably going to change if Musk takes over Twitter. Uh, but let us all enjoy these glory days as we can. Don't worry about the government is an ostensibly monthly podcast at this point. I want to thank you all so much for listening and supporting the show. And until the next one, bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.